Why should a charity try to put itself out of business? And how can fire help solve a water crisis in sub-Sahara Africa? Hey, I know someone who can answer those questions. Let's meet him. I'm Garland McWaters, and this is the Spirit of Leading Podcast. Matt Hangen is president and CEO of Water4, a not-for-profit organization that's helping communities in the sub-Sahara region of Africa enjoy the life-sustaining power of clear, uncontaminated water. Matt, welcome to the Spirit of Leading podcast. Now it's my honor, Garland. Thanks for inviting me, and I look forward to our conversation today. Well, I came across the Water 4 project several years ago when I attended a TED Talk, a TEDx event in Oklahoma City. I had a display, and I began talking to some of the people who were working the display, and I thought, this is a very interesting, fascinating project, uh, doing this kind of work uh, in other countries. And uh, so I've been able to kind of dig around a little bit and find out a few things about it, but I understand that the actual uh, founders of the whole project are Richard and Terry Greenley. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. They have a pump company. What's the backstory here? How did uh, they get involved in this, and how did you become involved with them? Dick and Terry are extraordinary individuals, and they, uh, their business, Pumps Oklahoma, was kind of hitting its prime. And uh, Greenlee's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, Terry's a brilliant business manager, COO. And um, Dick had a client come in his office and uh, yawn. And Greenlee sort of sat forward and said, you know, if I'm boring you, we can schedule our meeting again, being a very typical cowboy Greenlee. And the guy said, oh, sorry, I just got back from a mission trip from rural China. And Greenlee, of course, had the like immediate guilt response of, oh, gosh, I just shamed this guy when he just got back from mission trip. And he said, yeah, I should do something like that, too, sometime. And the guy woke up, you know, looked at him and said, no, you should. They need water desperately. You'd be perfect for a mission trip. And as it goes, Greenlee woke up, you know, six months later in rural China, sleeping next to a pig pen and installing one of the first rural solar pumps in the country. And this was back in 2003 or four. Um, and that sort of started something. The next thing he knew, every few months, he was traveling around installing pumps, trying to give them away to charities, trying to use his business, and he really couldn't get any traction. And he went to a leadership conference that Terry signed him up for, that Bill Hybels was leading. And they were going around the room with pastors and big public figures. And here was this cowboy, you know, from Oklahoma. They asked the question, you know, what gets you out of bed every morning? So Greenlee told him the story. You know, I thought my life was sort of on cruise control. Here I am, you know, my 50s, my business has made it. I've got the houses, the car, you know, all the stuff. And uh, now I really know what my life's about. I'm able to use my background as a geologist and as a pump manufacturer to serve the world, to work with uh, church groups that are, you know, working in really hard places. And um Hybels got so excited about that. He shared Greenlee's story at an Easter sermon and a man walked up at the end with a hundred thousand dollar check and said, give this to that cowboy in Oklahoma. So Terry, (laughs) as the finance person said, we can't take that check. (laughs) And then the wise people around the Greenlee's at Crossings Church here in Oklahoma said, man, people are trying to give you a hundred thousand dollars. You need to start a nonprofit and uh, try to figure out something to do with it. And, uh, that became Water 4 and was asking the question of what's our unique value add for the world as a business person, geologist, oil and gas background, water pump guy. 
what can we what can we do for the world and that answer that was given to dick and terry was to try to address the pump failure problem in africa and the high drilling cost in africa and devise a solution that would make pumps stop breaking or at least uh, be fixed when they do and reduce the cost of drilling for people, you know, over a billion people that face a water crisis around the world. That's a fascinating story. And it kind of uh, speaks to, uh, like you say, the, uh, you have a great idea and all the energies of the universe uh, go to work for you, <laughs> be it God, yeah. be it whatever you want to call it. And uh, the next thing you know, people are hearing about it and they're saying, well, we want to get involved and help out too. And now you're on, and now you're on center stage. Now, now they've, yeah. they've said, okay, you're the guy, you go do it. And it's okay. Well, why not? But how about you? How'd you come across this group? How did you end up, you know, now president and CEO of Waterfall? Yeah. Boy, that's a story. Uh, it's, it's one that uh, I don't think any of us thought would be told, but I, I will say this just about Greenlee and what you just mentioned about whatever forces work to good. He's sort of a serendipity magnet. He just says yes to everything. He's totally like not, not risk averse, whatever that means. He's very risk tolerant and good stuff just happens because of those, that spirit. And I'd say that's one of the things I've learned working with him is the power of sort of serendipitous, events when you're open to them mm-hmm. and that's you know we're we're, we're a, you know over a 10 million dollar organization now 12 years after that hundred thousand dollar check um on 10th street in oklahoma city which is you know not a not the high-rise portion of town um and yeah good stuff happens when you look for it and yeah that's well the real the, the real yes man the yes man in the flesh there <laughs> so. that's right absolutely never never met a challenge he'd back down from that's for sure so my, my story, I, I, uh, I'm not from Oklahoma. I'm from South Alabama. I grew up in a town of 3000, uh, in a pretty underprivileged, uh, family and household and got myself kicked out of public school when I was in the seventh grade, was told I was a you know, hopeless delinquent by the school board. I was told I couldn't come back. My parents used uh, the inheritance from my grandfather's passing to put me in a private school and that private school environment had a few families who really believed in me um, and one of those um, dads just passed away last year but there was a you know really a handful of people who saw beyond a uh, sort of troubled child that I was and um, saw some potential and those people helped put me on a course um, that uh, you know fundamentally changed my lives and I think a lot of others but I had a my senior year of high school I had a um, profound spiritual experience where um, out of nowhere not growing up in sort of a church background or religious context I heard a uh, a voice say that I didn't have to hurt or hurt others anymore and sort of my childhood context and belief system that was revolutionary for me it uh, was so profound that I um went from being a pre-enrolled mechanical engineer to wanting to go into Christian ministry and, um, just serve people. And it was a, it was a huge religious experience, spiritual experience I had. So I went to a Bible college, got involved in missions in South America and then, uh, East Africa. And, um, my second year of, um, doing that, my junior college, I was able to raise $8,000 for, uh, sort of refugee internal refugee crisis in Uganda. Uh, we did some concerts and some cook-offs and things like that. And the 
organization I tried to give the money to said, man, if you raise $8,000 in a semester as a college student, you need to go to Africa and, you know, do this, you know, hand this money to, to the organization there yourself. So I did and ended up spending two months hitchhiking around the country with a backpack full of Ugandan shillings, handing out beans and blankets um, to IDP or internally displaced persons camps. Um, lost a bunch of weight, uh, hitchhiked on the back of these big 18 wheelers full of corn bags under the starlight. Um, and it changed my life as dramatically as that spiritual experience I had. I came back from that trip um, after three months of being gone and uh, proposed to my then girlfriend and we headed off to Africa a year later. Uh, as soon as we got to Africa, uh, the biggest need I saw was a water crisis. A little boy died in a village, a waterborne illness where we had been uh, staying for a couple weeks at a time doing language learning. And I had the um, um, both pain and fortune of seeing that um, so firsthand that um, I could not do something about it afterward. And that resulted in me building drilling equipment locally, building a pump out of local materials and uh, drilled seven wells in that little boy's village. And at the end of it, there was so much change in the community from having the weight of a water crisis removed. One out of five kids die before the age of five from a water crisis. 80% of women in sub-Saharan Africa have to carry water more than three miles a day. It's just deplorable access issues with water. And so much of their their lives changed that I felt like the calling that I had had from rural Alabama, you know, relative poverty, hands-on work, missions, um, were all sort of intersecting around this water crisis. And, and that's what I met water for. So did you go looking for them or did they find you? Yeah, they just launched this cheesy website and uh, I was on Google looking for different technology. Stuff I was building from hand was like made of spring steel from junk cars and I mean, I was like MacGyvering this drill kit together that would, you know, fall apart three times a day while I was using it. So I was just trying to find something better than what I'd constructed. And their website popped up, had tools on it. I clicked every link, emailed everybody. And for, to their great delight, here was this gigantic Alabama redneck, uh, you know, drilling wells in uh, northern, Af northern West Africa. I'd trained five businesses. We were trying to make it locally sustainable. And it was sort of a match made in heaven. Greenlee, everything I was doing was what Greenlee wanted to do, but didn't know how to do. And it was just sort of a perfect, well, perfect pairing. Well, there's that serendipity again. Exactly. <laughs> well, that, that's an amazing story. And I, I'm, uh, I'm wondering, uh, Sort of as you kind of got together and started fashioning how this was going to work, what were some of the sort of built-in challenges that you had to overcome to kind of get from the idea to something that now really had a chance to really take off? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson we, we all had was that we assumed that the problem was superficial. We thought it was the pump technology or the drilling technology. And it was really, it was like the system, not the technology. It was the fact that Charities were set up and incentivized to drill wells, not to make sure they worked forever. 
Um, and so there was like a perverse incentive to spend a lot of money on an expensive well because that was an easy way to account for the money that had been raised. And that was the easy way to report to donors. And that was the big way to fundraise, to get more money in your organization. And then there was no system to say, does it work after it's installed? So we thought the pump itself was a problem. So we redesigned the pump. We redesigned our drilling equipment. We brought all the sophistication design to it. And then sort of realized the issue was the sector, not the pump. And we needed to look at designing businesses that would maintain, install, sort of, you know, monetize the pumps to where everyone saw them as an asset rather than a liability. And if the pump could be seen as a monetary asset, there'd be a natural incentive put in place to maintain it. So we went about sort of this business model solution, which still involves the technology we created but it was much more of a, you know, sort of a system sector problem than it was just a silver bullet technology problem. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of times when you look at a, an issue like that, like you're just describing, uh, the answer is not the obvious first answer. This issue, the issue is not the father. There's a system involved in everything, actually. Everything relates to everything else. And so you have to look a lot further into the into the interactions of those different moving parts, of which there are probably quite a few, to see yeah. exactly where you can have an impact. So when you identified that uh, there was, it was sort of a systems issue and this, uh, the sustainability had to do with them sort of begin, beginning to own that technology as an asset rather than just sort of a gift like, uh, what am I going to do with this now? What were the, the challenges in getting to that point? I mean, obviously there had to be local challenges with the, with the community, I mean, with the politics of the place and all that kind of thing going on. How did you work yeah. through that? I mean, it's really hard. It's like, uh, you know, a doctor telling us to adjust our diet and lifestyle rather than giving us some medicine. I mean, it's like the, the hard way to really go about solving it. So we, on the U.S. donor side, we've been sort of conditioned to see everyone as poor and helpless. And so we're not looking for their potential. We're not looking for their possibility. We're looking uh, at them out of a motivation of compassion and pity, which is good. You know, it's glad that we're moved that way. But the solutions we're prescribing are actually, um, you know, keeping people in places of poverty because we're not, you know, envisioning them developing out of it. So there's the donor side of it where we had to, you know, really use an empowerment model and talk about job creation talk about affordability. Yeah. People earn $2 a day. Well, let's design technology that can be sustained for people to earn $2 a day rather than, you know, run away from that. And then the people that are living in material poverty have been conditioned to sort of believe that they can't participate in their own development. And so it's actually going through and doing economic surveys, helping them work out the math of their own cost for quote unquote free water, um, the health costs, the lost work, you know, to help people see how much they're paying for drinking dirty water uh, in, um, and, uh, you know, secondary cost, Um, and then on the business side, um, you know, governments aren't used to businesses being water service providers. They're used to charity or subsidization through government doing it. So a lot of advocacy work with governments to help them see one that the current system isn't working. Um, and two, that business can be virtuous, which is sort of a novel idea, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's been a lot of influence from sort of European um, thinking of, of government models. As a free enterprise person myself, I've always believed that business is virtuous, that people go into business mm-hmm. because they see a need and they respond to a need. And, uh, and from their response uh, comes uh, people responding to that. Say, oh, well, that really solves my problem. So I want some of that. I want more of that. And so that's how the enterprise 
part of it works. And uh, it, eventually, you know, things kind of can go off the rails uh, with greed and other kinds of things, I suppose. But uh, that's, uh, that's not the fault of the business itself. <laughs> that's not the mm-hmm. fault of the enterprise or of the system of free enterprise or anything like that. It's the people who are choosing to implement it or use it or whatsoever. So uh, have, have you had to combat that? Uh, in any way or deal with that issue in any way as these enterprises start to uh, come online, you know, in those countries and, uh, and provide services, you know, locally and sustain themselves? Yeah, I think the, the, the like philosophical part of what we do has been our key to success and our ability to sort of philosophize, you know, in different levels, which has been a constant, uh, you know, source of energy for us. Um, but, you know, once it's always proof of concept, once something started, like we brought like modern water supply to rural communities, beautiful piped water systems that are aspirational, that are branded, that are, you know, we do water quality uh, assurance checks every 30 days. The governments aren't able to do them, you know, in, in decades. Nobody else can, you know, guarantee the water we have. And, and we're getting water to people's homes. In Ghana, we have 500 household connections in our in one of the most rural counties in the country. Um, and so once people see it, they get really excited about it, see that the business can actually sustain itself. Uh, people can earn an income. We've created 600 jobs. Um, it's always the initial part where people just don't understand it. But once it's up and running, people get excited about it and understand the, the virtue um, you know, of this approach. As, as you've been over there, and I know you probably go there quite a bit yourself, uh, and I've looked at the website and I see that you have staff over there, people who are mm-hmm. able to, to be there and help sustain the effort. Uh, how have they, in a sense, taught people to uh, lead themselves through this enterprise? How have they been, that, in a yeah. sense, you can't not be a trainer or a teacher or <laughs> a mentor of some kind in this kind of environment. Uh, and not have and, and get and transfer that ownership from the the original provider to the people who are now are using it. How do you how do you how have you supported that? Yeah, I think on you know at the community level, there's nothing more reciprocal. There's no better way to get eye to eye to people than to do basic commerce. You know, when you sell a good and get paid for it, like that's people. If people don't like it, they don't pay for it. And so you have to listen to your consumer when you're in business. And you're driven by your consumer demands and desires when you're a small business, especially we would come, we uh, get confused about monopolies and small business. And what we're talking about here are small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really have to listen to their clients. So there's a high level of ownership when people are paying for water because now it's their system that they're paying for and they are going to get what they want because they're paying for it. So that's been a huge change. You know, we're not recipients of charity. We're proud, empowered people who are paying for a service. And we're going to demand that service or we're not going to pay for it. And the business is on the hook to provide that service because they survive off the revenue from those individuals rather than the charity. Mm -hmm. So that's the first level of ownership at a community level. And then two, from a business point, man, people are just chomping to be leaders and to have, you know, responsibility and to be a part of social movement and change. The, the, The individuals we get to interact with in Africa are tenacious entrepreneurs who are hardworking, who always side hustle and, you know, are doing everything they can to get ahead, to access any bit of information they can get from the internet. I mean, they're making use of every minute of their lives to advance themselves. 
And, you know, if we provide a little structure and some opportunities, they run with it. Um, that's the biggest thing I would say about 15 years of working in sub-Saharan Africa is, uh, man, we, our imaginations are pretty limited. Um, and there's some, you know, really intelligent, hardworking people that, you know, I hope come kick our tails one day <laughs> with, uh, you know, the work ethic and, and, and vision that they have. Well, so as, I, as you reflect on that experience and the stories you've been telling me, uh, what have you, what lessons of leadership have you learned from them? I started to say maybe what lessons of leadership have you taught people, but maybe you've learned a few things along the way yourself. What are you learning that you think is, is making you better at what you do? I think number one, I mean, it's, it's the, you cannot judge a book by its cover, you know, and, and especially the cover that we're looking for is one based on material assets that people have. We're so quick to make a value judgment based on people's income. And, you know, I sat across from, uh, you know, a woman in Southern Ghana that makes uh, basically mashed potatoes. It's this fufu yam mash that they use a huge mortar and pestle to mash. And, um, you know, she has, by selling bags of thick mashed potatoes, built her own restaurant on a roadside. She is the highest volume water consumer in the area um, and um, has two daughters and a husband that looks at her with immense pride and dignity. And as she sat on the sort of wooden stump peeling cassava with a, you know, pretty <laughs> murderous looking knife uh, by second nature, I thought this woman could teach, you know, our entire nation about tenacity, entrepreneurship. She knew what she was spending on you know, consumables and food and water down to the you know seventh de decimal point and worked herself out of, out of poverty. You might, we might look at her and think she's in poverty, but she's worked herself out of poverty and moved her whole family ahead. And, um, and I've just, you know, many points has brought to tears so inspired by her story and her spirit and the way she looks out of her eyes um, with hope and, um, I mean, that's the biggest thing. I, I've just met all of these individuals who have come from the most unlikely places in, our, in the way we write stories that are doing incredible things. And I'm glad that we've been able to provide opportunities to people. There's a guy named Sylvester who was a college student who did some surveys, who's now the franchise manager for 500 water systems. And he's, you know, he and I sat down next to the governor of a huge district of half a million people. And I watched him do a sales pitch, you know, in his uh, dry cleaned, you know, pressed white dress shirt. And, you know, here and now he stands this, you know, 30 year old man before me that is confident and articulate on the radio. And uh, it's just a lot of those stories that have reminded me where I came from and who I am and the fact that it was because people believed in me along the way that I'm a CEO today. And, mm -hmm. um, I really like being a part of an organization that is able to pass that on to others. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in that sense, uh, when I talk about the spirit of leading, uh, which is the name of this podcast, uh, what does that conjure up in your own mind? The spirit of leading, what does that mean to you? And how do you just kind of show that in your own experience? Yeah, it's a, I, uh, I'm a very, um, uh, active person in my mind and body. And I used to think that that was leadership that, um, pouring all of that energy out 
onto the people that were around me and onto the intermission was really the thing that moved it forward. And I think the biggest revelation I've had, uh, especially in the last two years of stillness that COVID's brought me has, uh, has been learning that leadership is a torch passing a fire on to other torches uh, to fill a room with light. Um, it's not running around <laughs> in circles with your own torch, um, trying to light it up um, on your own. And so there's a different energy of leadership that I've discovered that's um, much more in helping people realize their potential rather than working so hard to expand my potential and reach, um, you know, as, as a leader. Well, that's a great visual to, uh, to reflect on, to think of, because when you uh, light other people's torches, you have that much more light, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> when it reduces our shadows, you know, at the one singular leader with the bright light, you know, fire cast a shadow. You know, we often don't think about that, but, uh, even a flame will cast a shadow on the ground. And when we ignite others' uh, lights, we reduce the shadows that are in the room mm -hmm. because we're all lit together. Um, and I think that's another, you know, powerful part of that, that analogy that I've, right. I've seen in real life. Right. you say that i'm reflecting on something i saw in one of the videos that uh, that promotes uh, water for and it's uh, using the acronym of fire mm -hmm. and uh, kind of the thing that went through my mind was the idea of fire and water <laughs> they seem mm -hmm. to be like opposites of each other but yet uh, the word fire itself uh, stands for a number of values that uh, that uh, water for uh, makes a part of uh, a part of their mission and uh, would you like to speak to those Sure. Yeah, we intentionally play on words to fight a water crisis with fire. And, uh, so fire stands for faith, innovation, reimagine, and empower. So those four core values, you know, one being a faith-based organization, you know, where we're actually trying to use business as an avenue of sharing God's love with people. Innovation is just, we, you know, it's part of our sort of rebellious nature to believe that we can make things better. Um, and often innovation runs towards simplicity and old things, but we're all about reimagining the status quo uh, through innovation and reimagine sort of like a, a, a just hitting that point twice where we don't think that people in Africa have to be recipients of charity. We think mm -hmm. that they can actually solve their own problems sure. and put charity out of business uh, through our approach. And then empowerment's the same thing. It's, it's this idea that we're not sending Americans over on airplanes to solve other people's problems. It's about the thousands of jobs that are created locally and for them to be the heroes, for them to be the ones of the capes walking off in the sunsets sure. uh, and really to keep that as a central part of our mission. Awesome. Well, that's uh, very closely aligned to some of my own values and what I try to present uh, through not only the spirit of leading, but uh, my, my, my brand, which I call live empowered and this mm -hmm. I empowered and the idea is just as you described it to find within people that energy I call it the creative energy of God love uh, mm -hmm. that uh, that we all possess every person breathing possesses it and uh, and if we are able to find ways to unleash that energy that we already possess in creative and innovative ways that we do solve our problems and we find within us our own ability to um, 
to ex- excel and uh, create value in our lives, and not only that, but affect positively the lives of all those around us to enlarge yeah. the the, uh, the lives of other people and to bring them joy as well. And uh, who are we to think that because we are we see ourselves a certain way that other people that we don't see like us <laughs> don't have that same energy, don't have that same exactly. that same ability? But they all do. We all do. We all have exactly the same. Yes. That's the whole, the concept of the Imago Dei is motivating for me. It's this idea that everyone bears the image of God, you know, and, that, and that's in, in, in equally, you know, that image bearing part of us is born in our, you know, interiors. And uh, the more we can cultivate eyes that see that in individuals, despite their exterior environments, I think the sure. more we see as the divine does in the world. Yeah. Well, we'll be, be, be uh, beyond the skin deep part of us. <laughs> we are all the same yeah. and uh, exactly the same. Yes. And uh, certainly uh, your experience uh, bears that out. Your own uh, life lived, uh, you know, seeing it firsthand bears that out. Uh, what would your, what would your message be to us as we, uh, you know, you, if you brought that uh, message back to us in our country, uh, how can we learn to be our better selves from what you've seen in people in, in, uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa finding their own better selves? Yeah. I, I, what I observe here is we're, we're also trying to treat our problems by looking at what's on the surface. And so we're sort of convinced if we get this new app or this new supplement or this new, you know, uh, whatever it is, book we read that we're going to be able to treat the problems that we face around us and uh, really stopping to look at the systems that are involved in the problems that we have uh, in addressing those who are the people that we spend time with, you know, we're the sum of the five people we spend the most time with in our lives. Um, are the sources of our unhealth and stress, um, and our, even our financial issues. Um, so really stopping to go down the root causes of things and then having the discipline to build ramps and not necessarily stairs or ladders, but build ramps that, um, are going to, get us beyond those barriers uh, and into some sense of freedom. And I think freedom is what we all deserve. It may not look like uh, what we define it as in the current moment, but to really be free uh, and to live freely is uh, the whole point of our design uh, in, in God's image. Well said, and a lot to think about there, a lot to unpack with that. So uh, kind of what's next? Uh, you know, you've, uh, you've been a lot of... Uh, Tremendous stories and uh, and lessons learned over the last several years that you've been involved. Do you see uh, a direction that's uh, unfolding for where Water Four might be going down the road? Yeah, it's uh, we've had incredible opportunities. We've you know grown forty uh, percent in the last two years, and I think the we are uh, sort of showing up overnight in rural counties in Africa, uh, in in partnership with government, communities, and health. Um, and uh, health uh, practices, but bringing piped water to rural communities that's fee-based. And it's, it's, uh, we just did a system for 3000 people in uh, 15 days. And I mean, it's, this is piped miles of piping, solar pumps, towers, tanks, and uh, our ability to deliver speed um, and then to have unprecedented quality. I just drank out of systems in Ghana that are over five years old. 
uh, where the water quality is still pristine and perfect, which is shockingly uncommon for charity work. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, our ability to driver, deliver aspirational quality stuff, quality water to communities um, is uh, it's really exciting. So we're trying to do 20 counties by 2030 and prove that we can have a scaled, financially viable piped water system for rural communities um, that doesn't require charity and that actually is paying for more development out of profits that are being reinvested into development work mm-hmm. um, and sort of try to put charity out of business. That's our big thing is we, we think that charity should exist in the problems that they're started to combat. And we're taking that seriously. And uh, we hope at 2030, we've got some, you know, oases in the middle of the water deserts, uh, you know, water crisis deserts that are out there to show people this is what it costs. This is what it generates. This is how many people it helps. Now let's take this to the nearly, like I say, over, over 1 billion people that face this problem right. daily. As you all begin, are having obviously success with uh, your approach, uh, are, do you see other uh, NGOs, charitable organizations looking to your model and asking, gee, I mean, how can we adapt that for our own purposes? Yeah, we've had some good parts uh, sort of develop because everyone knows that's in the water space that the pump failure problem is the second water crisis. You know, up to two thirds of the pumps in Sub-Saharan Africa that have been paid for are broken at any one time. So there's like the water crisis and the second water crisis is that, you know, 35 to 70 percent of the pumps are broken. Um, so, uh, this, what we're doing is really exciting and novel, but it also creates a messaging crisis for them where when they start talking about what we do, it shines light on a problem that most people don't know about. So we're, we're trying to, you know, walk that thin line of being appreciative about what's being done while highlighting what needs to be done for the future. Um, but we definitely see the future as partnership. Water four doesn't need to be some megalithic charity we want to put ourselves out of business so the more we can give our ideas and model away to people the faster we solve the problem and and move on to the next thing fascinating great concept and i want you to change hats for just a second and right. uh, let me put the motivational speaker hat on <laughs> for, right. for a second and uh, you've been uh, asked to stand in front of a group of young people in their uh, early 20s, mid 20s, they're envisioning themselves, you know, what they want to do with the rest of their life and uh, find a life of purpose and meaning, which uh, we hear a lot about. And uh, how to start, uh, how to look for and find something that they want to be about that, uh, that uh, will really turn them on for the rest of their lives. What would you tell them? What would you tell them about what you've learned? You got to get really hyper clear on what your unique abilities and the intersection of that unique ability and the desires of the, the market, you know, desires of the world. And I think the like market's a great way to look at, like you said, filling a need your, you know, enterprises are responding to needs. So it's, it's being hyper clear on who you are. That's the first discovery, what unique value you add as that individual and how that intersects with the market. We spend way too much of our time trying to copy other people. And because we're copying other people, we're really poor versions. We're, you know, a copy is a poor version of an original. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that um, self-discovery is the best investment someone can make. And uh, the way to do self-discovery, in my opinion, is to get really good at um, delayed gratification, about meditation, um, about, you know, um, 
getting away from distractions and letting those voices that we hide from bubble up to the surface. So get to know who you are. Stoicism has been really good for me with that, you know, along with my Christian faith and, and a meditation from an Eastern perspective um, of getting interior and then um, uh, figure out what your unique abilities are and how that intersects with the market. And that market discovery process just is listening to people and, you know, asking them how does who I am really respond to a need that you see for yourself or your company. Well said, and uh, certainly something that we can all, at any age, uh, find ourselves thinking about. I think uh, no matter how old we are, we're always asking ourselves, am I, have I, uh, am I doing the things that I feel are important to me as a human being to do, to reach out and do, using my talents and energies, and, mm-hmm. and I'd say working my art in, uh, in, my own, in my own application, in my own life. Uh, I know that uh, you're also an athlete. And uh, I've read, I think I've read that in your bio. So have, have you found these principles also be beneficial in the way you prepare uh, as an athlete to compete? Yeah. So uh, when I was 27, I had um, uh, an autoimmune crisis that confined me to a bed for six months in a wheelchair. I was told I'd be disabled the rest of my life. I was 320 pounds, mm-hmm. couldn't walk, couldn't see. Um, and a part of this journey over the last decade has been becoming an athlete and I wasn't one before. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I, I just finished a full distance Ironman last year. I've done 80 plus mile ultra marathons, lots of marathons, ran across the grand Canyon and back three different times. Wow. Um, and yeah, the, the idea of sort of embracing suffering, believing in my potential and the, the potential of the human body believing in my design to move, but you know it, just by my own nature um and embracing potential over fear has enabled me to do these things that i never thought was possible and i lost 120 pounds i you know have reversed um uh, these health issues i had i went from 30 drugs to none um and um uh, yeah these those mentalities have been absolutely crucial to really just exploring the capabilities of my own body through um, athletics. Oh, wonderful and inspirational by itself, uh, Matt. And I'm uh, certainly impressed with the story that you tell and obviously the results that you're getting. And uh, hopefully the inspiration it can add to those who listen to this podcast and say, you know, Matt can do that. I think I can do something almost like that. <laughs> Oh, so, more or yeah. more. My, my grand, my granddad was sort of a, a you know a stoic of his own. He would say, you know, if anyone can do it, you can do it, Matthew, and that was his thing. And then he would add, it might not look as good, it might take you a little longer, but you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> but there's this, you know, like Marcus Aurelius says that in meditations. Essentially, if any human can do it, you can do it. That's amazing. And, um, I really believe that that's come from experience. Is that if you the first thing, if you believe, you will accomplish it. So focus on that first step of belief. Absolutely. Well, uh, it's, haven't we heard that before? Even the issue of our own, uh, what we call our spiritual inner self, or we call a prayer life or meditation, or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and so many other philosophies really speak to the same, the same idea that if you believe it, uh, whether it's pray believing or meditate believing or using the laws of attraction or whatever they are, they all come back to the belief. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the faith, the faith in yourself, the faith in the energy of the universe or the power of God or however you want to talk about that. This out there, I call it the creative energy, unleashing the creative energy that you have 
that we all have abundantly, and I think I mentioned one time, it's the fullness of the fullness of God, is I think mm. the way the New Testament actually phrases that, that uh, we, have, uh, we have that power of the universe deep, deep, deep within each and every one of us, and all we have yes. to do is be brave enough to say, oh, let's just let, turn that loose and see what happens. <laughs> here, that's Live the that here way. I am, send me. You yes. know, it's just you know, embracing the potential of God in us. That's beautiful. So, well, listen, thank you so much for your time, Matt. I, I certainly want to congratulate you on uh, the success that you've been having with uh, Water 4 and also in your own personal life. And uh, I encourage you all to keep it up. I want to hear more about this story as it continues to unfold. And uh, hopefully uh, someone will be listening that will pick up on these ideas and want to say, well, I think I can bring those into our own efforts, our own organization, or my own personal life, mm -hmm. and uh, do something with that. So thanks so much for sharing your story with us on the Spirit of Leading podcast. My pleasure. Well, that's Matt Hangen, president and CEO of Water 4 in Oklahoma City, my guest on this episode of the Spirit of Leading podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this installment of The Spirit of Leading, and I want to thank you for listening. I encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the spirit of leading at work or in your community. And when you join The Empowered, you receive a notification of my latest podcasts or the latest post in my weekly Empowering Thoughts series. So please share this Spirit of Leading podcast with your friends and your colleagues. And until next time, I urge you to live empowered each and every day and unleash your creative energy. Enliven the heart, enlighten the mind, encourage the spirit, and enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters. Mm -hmm.